Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech-Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Welcome to the Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. I would say she has very special insight into the dynamics between children and their parents slash caregivers. Currently, although she is still doing part-time telehealth and is an IEE assessor, she has recently retired. (laughs) Okay. How's that working out? Yeah, kind of a running joke between the two of us. I'm going, really? You sure you're going to do that, huh? So she founded the Crimson Center for Speech and Language in 2003 in San Diego County, and it expanded. And by 2015, there were five locations. Karen has done research on autism and early intervention and was a clinical supervisor in the speech pathology department at San Diego State University, SDSU, for 12 years through fall 2022. She has numerous publications, including Early Intervention for Speech and Language, Empowering Parents. Karen has taught CEU courses, presented on a variety of speech and language topics, live and online. And this is her second appearance. Welcome back to the Speech Link, Karen. 
Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So glad you're here. You were just breathing. So what, what did you want to say? <laughs> I was just saying it's it's wonderful to be back and to be invited again. And this oh. is a different topic than what we covered last time. I can't even remember what we covered last time. It was early intervention. And okay. I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is a different topic, but I'm going to say this topic is really right up your alley. Yeah. I have never heard anybody talk about this topic. I think it's this kind is, of unique. And this is what I used to travel doing the CEU course. I did it through cross-country education, which was a big company back in the day before the recession. And I went mostly to the East Coast. They sent me mostly to the East Coast to teach the course. I did a course on early intervention for speech and language. And then I wrote the book. And then I started doing the ambiguous loss with my students. But my daughter has her master's degree in family. She's an MFA. Marriage and family. Marriage family. Yeah. Okay. MFT. She's an MFT. Okay. Therapist. Okay. Yeah. She's an MFT. And she came and met me in New York City and heard part of the conversation I was doing. And I taught that CEU course from 2006 through 2010. And I found at the time that most of the people that came to my course were speech and language therapists. Very few were interested in what the parents were going through. What they wanted to know was how to, how to fix the kids. Right. And then I, I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted by the conversations. I shouldn't read them. Yumi's taking care of all that. I started the course with 50%. The morning session was on what the families were going through. And the afternoon was what we could do to help with them, what kind of therapy to do for the early intervention children. And most of my morning session was interviews with parents reflecting back on what it was like to go through the early intervention process. And I think we talked about that last time. But I had always been interested in parent-child interaction from before I was a speech and language therapist. Mm. And then as an undergraduate, I went to a university which had a clinic, which is unusual. We didn't have any graduate students, but we had a clinic. And I worked with a child with autism back in the 70s. We didn't have autism spectrum disorder. We had autism as a unique and pretty refined disability. I went back to graduate school, University of Illinois, and I was told I could get a full scholarship if I worked in rehab. So I worked in rehabilitation for one year and Hmm. found that that was very depressing. But even then, I started a pilot program, and I can't remember what the acronym was because I'm big on acronyms, but it was something about educating the families of people who had had strokes because... Hmm or traumatic brain injury, any form of traumatic brain injury, because in particular, families were very confused when we were saying occupational therapy. What kind of occupation is he going to have now? Yeah, yeah. Um, And that I found the same thing was true of caregivers of children with developmental disabilities. What kind of occupation are the children going to have? So the whole project that I did, the pilot project I did with adults was bringing the providers into sessions once a week to talk with the group. It was a support group, essentially. And the idea was to educate because you could have a parent 
or you can have an adult caregiver who is a grocery store worker, bagger at a grocery store, or you can have somebody who is a an MD. They just don't have the knowledge in the same area that we have. They might not know, even an MD should know, I would hope, would know what an occupational therapist is, but they don't always because mm-hmm. if they're a pediatrician, they might not know. So the whole concept was to build awareness of what their loved one was going to be going through. And then I carried it over to my work with children when I transitioned back to children back in 1975, Okay, 77. So give me a definition. What is ambiguous loss? Because, you know, it seems like I've heard of it in the back of my mind. And I know it's been around, I think, since the 70s in one form or another. But how does it relate to what we are doing? How does it relate to our field, what we do with our clients and our parents and caregivers and so on? So I'm really interested in what we can do. (laughs) You know, like you were saying, yes, we are interested in speech and language remediation. Well, I'm really interested in how we can help the parents so that they make it through okay, but also so that it impacts their children. So, so that think, there's team effort. I think that's a really good way of phrasing it. It's got to be a team effort. So often we have parents of children dropping their kids off in therapy and want the children fixed. Mm-hmm. And my research group and I started working on a project impact for toddlers, which was the youngest intervention for children at risk for autism here in San Diego. And the idea was, I'm really big about Let's not call it parent education because parent education implies that I have to educate you on how to parent. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's parent coaching. And in my book, I call it reciprocal coaching because the parents have to coach us about the dynamics of their family life. And this was the theme that ran throughout everything we did when we were interviewing parents was we have to become really good listeners. So when I had somebody in my CEU course say in the in front of the entire group, I hope she's not here tonight, she said, don't you think at some point the parents just need to get over it? I was really glad to hear most of the people behind her, sitting behind her, just gasping. I was going to say, did they gasp? Because <laughs> that did. was kind of my response too. It's a horrible thing to say. We have to become really good listeners and I think very genuine listeners. And I think that that's one of the things I've found. Of all people, school psychologists, they go through these managerial courses. This is before the pandemic. So I don't know what's going on since then. I do have a Zoom IEP tomorrow morning. I think that- And a psych will be there. And a psych- Yeah, and a cycle be there. This was a good one, but we (laughs) thought he was good. And now he's sort of turned on things. Uh Um, But they go through these managerial courses and they use these catchphrases. Like, I hear what you're saying, but there's always a but. And whenever I would hear that, or we want to all be on the same page, I know what's meant by that. But I, what I always was telling my students and even people at the CEU course is if you find yourself speaking in cliches, then you're not really listening. You need to get rid of that cliche because if it's that easy to say, 
oh, yeah, I've worked with a million kids with autism. I know what to do. You've never worked with this child with autism. You've never worked with this family before. And you've got to customize it. There are some strategies that remain the same and that you're going to carry over and you'll use with maybe one kid and you'll try it and it doesn't work and then you try something else. But going back to your question, Pauline Boss, she coined the term ambiguous loss in 1973, and she was referring to losses without finality or resolution. So I'm oversimplifying her work. But what she was working on primarily were two different disabilities. One was somebody who is still present, but not there. So somebody who's going through dementia, somebody who's going through our children, any of the children that we've worked with, with developmental disabilities, they're there. And I've even in my head or in my dreams, I've had dreams where a child will talk to me and this kid's nonverbal. Or I've been in a therapy session where spontaneously the kid said, leave me alone. And that was the only phrase he ever spoke ever. He's now 22 and he still hasn't spoken anything. But the mother was behind a one-way mirror, which I installed in all my clinics because I wanted the parents either in the session or observing the session. So we could really have a quality talk about it afterwards. Instead of going out into the waiting room and saying he had a good day, I just had a parent talk to me today about another child in her nonverbal child's class, and her nonverbal child is 10. And this little girl had dental procedure a week ago and was not real stable because of this sedative that was used. And the mother told the special ed team, watch her, she's not real stable, make sure she stays in her wheelchair, don't let her out. Well, she had a concussion. And to be fair, the regular teacher who the parent I was talking to is really, really good. He was just out. He wasn't there that day. He had a sub in Mm. and this is what happened. So she comes home from school, scratched up, Mm. and the mother has to call the school and ask what happened. So it's very frightening, I think, to have a child who's there physically, but can't tell you what happened. And I started listening to parents And what did they want to know? Well, they wanted to know events of the day. So I have typical kids who are now 40s, so it doesn't count. But when they were in their teenage years, I'd say to them, what did you do at school today? Oh, nothing. But they could tell me if something bad happened. They wouldn't necessarily, not (laughs) teenagers, they wouldn't. No. I smoked dope, mom. Yeah. (laughs) Now I'm a lawyer. Now I worry about my kids smoking dope. Okay, well, how's that going? But I think that when parents of children with disabilities ask their child, what did you do today? They have no way to go back or to prompt the child on what to say. So I came up with a form. I have it in my drawer next to me, which is called school event retail. And I asked the aides and or the lead teacher to fill out one thing. Who did he play with at recess? Who did he lunch with or Where did he go today? Did he go on a field trip? So it's one activity and one name. So when the child is trying to get that information out, or maybe not trying to get it out or can't get it out, the parent has a way of facilitating that. So I'm going off on a tangent again, but Pauline Boss really started this ambiguous loss topic. And 
I think that our children with developmental disabilities fit in one category. The other category she has is people who have left without saying goodbye. So that would be more the POWs, the MIAs, people missing in action, or children who are kidnapped. And we just don't have any close. The whole concept is having to say goodbye without any closure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back as I looked at your PDF and a phrase stood out at me. And of course, we all know this, but the phrase is communication is the foundation of all relationships. And I'm thinking what you were talking about as far as what did you do today in school? And you have a child that just can't respond to that, that that form of communication is denied them. And that there is kind of a grieving of, wow, I wish that I could really interact with my child and just get to know what's going on in their life, uh, you know, maybe at school and other areas. But it seems like that is, is a loss because you there's none of that interactive piece in communication it's, verbally. I think that that I've heard from parents and I can feel that myself just by watching the parents and the children that the whole concept of, okay, my child cannot walk. That's horrible. If your child cannot walk or cannot throw a baseball or can't use their arms or maybe don't have arms, those are huge losses, but I can still connect with them. Yeah. And, but. and I think I'm, I'm coming up with a slide here. I think it's Mies and Petit said the best synchrony of the quality of the parent-child relationship is the synchrony. And you're not going to have a synchrony of no. interaction no. if you don't have communication. Right. Communication is an innate desire to share information. And I think it was Dr. Edward Tronick did the still face experiment. And he was really looking at mental illness in parents, which does happen. So you can have a parent who's mentally ill and can't really care for the baby. And Selma Freiberg, F-R-A-I-B-E-R-G, she's no longer alive, but she was a psychiatric social worker, first at University of Michigan, I believe, and then later on at University of San Francisco. And she did a lot of work on working with parents who were maybe 15 years old in the inner city, and they didn't have access to a lot of things. And so the Bailey scores on the babies were very low. So they were showing back then in the 60s and 70s, we called it failure to thrive. But what she did was she had the social workers come in and meet the needs of the parents and see the Bailey scores rise. So the children's needs were getting met because the parents were, yes, I can send you the daily events form and I'll send that to Shar and she can figure out how to get it. I just actually gave it to an older school that retell of events. And it, again, it's empowering parents. It's giving them a way to facilitate the communication. It's also a great way to coach parents on how to elicit the language we want from the kids without modeling it. So it's without right. giving them the whole answer. Where did you play today? Did you play on the play, play, playground? And then see if the, give the child enough time to right. get out the word. And did you play with Nathan? Give him the time to come up with the word. 
the name of the child that he played with. But how else is a parent going to be able to do that if they don't have the answers to the questions because they don't know? So the parent gives up, the child gives up. And I've seen, and you and I have talked about the Einstein theory. One of my nephews didn't speak till he was three. He went from zero communication to perfect communication. But by then there was a disrupted parent-child interaction between him and my brother and him and his mother, because they went through three years of not being able to communicate, not being in sync. Yeah. So those things are not good. Now, is that the same as fragmented parent-child interactions? Is that the same? Yes. And on my chart, I made up that chart in the 70s. And I still am using it today. I do think that if in your handout, got, in your handout, it's, in, it's my handout. Yeah. Okay. I think that the, the school event retail is not, I think it also empowers speech and language therapists in the school. I've had some success with that. It's really getting people to know that this is important. You've got to get relay the information to the home. Right. So I think what I'm going to do is give out my email address and also can we give out your email address because there are going to be people listening to this on a podcast and just audio only and if they want that handout they could contact either one of us yeah that's fine use my gmail account and i've had people attend workshops in the past and i've given out my email i have have no social i have no private life so that's fine (laughs) okay Well, you know, I don't know if you're going to get hundreds here, but there's going to be somebody that wants to have it. So go ahead and give out your email and I'll give out mine as well. You know, I have no problem in doing that or sharing. I have no problem sharing your information. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If it's okay. No, it's fine. All right. What's your email? It's Karen LS. I'm going to put it in the chat room too. Karen LS2. Karen with a Y ls2 at gmail.com. Okay. All right. Well, the people that are here in speechtherapypd.com, they probably can access it pretty oh, that's easily. Good. That's a yeah. very good point, yeah. but it won't be so everybody. The, yeah. The audios, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And my email address is char, C-H-A-R, at speechdynamics.com. So feel free to email me or Email Karen, either one of us, you know, just just want to make sure that we cover the bases. Yeah, because this is pretty interesting and and important information. So so we're looking at fragmented parent-child interactions. Are we looking at a form of grief? I mean, is there a form of grief here? So you know what I'm saying? I'm glad I'm glad you asked that. When I first started doing the CEU course, I was trying to neatly fit in all the things that parents were going through into a grief category. So I was using Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Warden, and somebody else. Yeah. Um, And I think when I was an undergraduate, I went to hear Ken Moses speak. He's a psychologist and he was at Northwestern University and he spoke about what it was like, the grieving process that parents went through when they found out their children were deaf or hard of hearing. Mm -hmm. And I thought he was an amazingly dynamic speaker. I went to hear him four or five years later. And by then he and his wife had given birth to a child with cerebral palsy. So he was 
talking about grief, but he had a whole different dimension to it because yeah. he was going through it himself. Yeah. I looked him up when I was writing my book because I wanted to reference him because he just had such an impact on my life. And he's only published one small article and it's not much, but I did put it in my book. I really think that he got it and he was able to share it. And that's the important thing. I had a therapist say to me, one of my staff members say to me, at what point do you tell a parent the child isn't making any progress and you have to discontinue? And my response was never. If a parent needs a break and they come to you and say, I need to take a break from all these therapies, which happens, I I get it a lot, less so now that we're doing telehealth, but it's still pretty powerful. Parents are exhausted. Sure. It's exhausting. I was just talking to somebody who said, isn't it exhausting just to be a parent anyway of typically developing kids? Yes. It's true. It's horribly exhausting. I'm scanning now things that I wrote back when my kids were just born. And I'm amazed that I'm still here. And I had three typically developing kids who just ran me ragged. And I see my daughter, the MFT, with her two young daughters, a two-year-old and a four-year-old who stay here once a week and we babysit for them. It's exhausting being around them. My husband and I can't can't hardly move when after they leave. Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. So- but it, So what do we, the guilt. Okay. So grief and guilt. I'm trying to process this. Is that the guilt is, could I do more typically? That's what I've seen. Or I remember a, a geneticist from UCSD, University of California, San Diego. So he had his PhD in genetics, but he was from Korea. And he came into my office one day back then his daughter, who was four, was diagnosed with PDD NOS, which is no longer a diagnosis. But he was practically in tears saying to me, if one more person tells me I need to be more animated, I'm going to kill myself because this is the animation. He's from Korea. He's a man. And so I I had him close his eyes in my office. I didn't make him close his eyes. And I said, what did you imagine doing with your four-year-old daughter? Let's do that. So let's start there. And he said, I imagine sitting at a table coloring with her. So we tried that. And then we got to the floor and then we did more animation. But he needed to have somebody hear him say, don't feel guilty. There's no reason to feel guilty. We'll start where you are. We'll begin where you are. I had a parent come in to me I had been treating her child with a very mild learning disability, but she was an MD and her husband was an MD. And she came to me three years after we'd been involved in treatment. And she said, I never told you I had a martini once when I was pregnant. She had harbored that guilt for all those years. She felt she alone was responsible for her child's minor, minor disability. Wow. We all have that. We all have that guilt. We all have oh, if I had only given my daughter a little bit more time with me, she would not feel the way she does about me today. Now it's good. I want to tell everybody it gets really good once your child has children of their own, but it can get pretty tough in the beginning that they don't like you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Oh, dear. Particularly particularly if you're not friends with them. It's hard for those of us who are in the field 
where we're working with families all the time and our lives aren't perfect. So there's that guilt. There's guilt everywhere. There's enough guilt, any religion, any phase, any disorder, any milestone that you're approaching is going to have yeah. some sort of guilt. Oh dear. Yeah. That's a whole nother avenue, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We so, can have another conversation about yeah. that. Okay. So we're sitting in either, uh, you know, an eligibility or IEP meeting, you know, whatever term that, you know, you want to use and you've got the school psychologist there and maybe the PT or OT or a social worker and, you know, they've got their friends, their advocates or whatever. And, you know, one of those meetings, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's kind of a first meeting and maybe it's a younger child. What is our role? I mean, what do we do? What can we say? Because we do represent communication and we're not just there to provide scores, test scores, which is okay, but certainly it, it has to go beyond that. So what is our role? What can we do in that type of situation? And I'm thinking, you know, if you have a private practice, it's not going to be too terribly different. You're not going to have all those people there, but what do we do? What are some of the things we can say, or what should we not say? How do we approach I, I, working with this parent early on? I think what I've recommended to most people working in the schools is that you call the parent before the IEP meeting and you have some sort of connection. So the parent yeah. feels connected. I think if you think about early intervention, early intervention is one-on-one -on -one and typically the parent should be in the session or observing the session. That doesn't always happen, but it should be. And with Zoom, I think there was a group of us who had been doing parent coaching for many years. And we, at the beginning of the pandemic, freaked out because how are we going to do coaching now? Oh, wait, coaching's easier now. We mm -hmm. can do it on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Um, long as the parent's there. <laughs> as long as, yeah. If the yeah. parent leaves the room... Yeah, And I've had that happen with yeah. big kids. And I just went to a house in not far from me because I couldn't get the 17-year-old to really participate over telehealth. So I went to the house and both parents left the room and I thought the kid's bigger than I am. I'm not sure I'm not going to get hurt. So there's that fear. But I think your question about how do you approach these parents is building the relationship outside of the district or outside of your private practice. I think that's important. I've had so many parents contact me recently who had been working with other staff members from my clinic. And they're saying, I'm the only person they can get in touch with. And I can't really give them the location of these other places because people are making therapists, I think, do things that are not ethical. I just got an email last night from the former head of the clinic at San Diego State. And she said she just got notified that one of our former students is working in Los Angeles County. And she was told whenever she has a cancellation, she has to work on a video teaching a parent how to read a story to a kid. Is that billable session? And I said, no, exclamation point. And then I prefaced it by saying it depends on who the funding source is. But typically, it's not. You've got to have eyes on the child, and you've got to have the child in the session, and you've got to be working with the parent and the child if you're doing anything. I think what we need to do as therapists, and this has been really hard 
even before the pandemic, but I think it's getting harder now. There's a lot of agencies that are opening up that are providing not great therapy and with not great moral and ethics. So I think you've got to listen to your heart. And I think you've got to go to the ASHA site and renew your awareness of what the code of ethics are for speech and language therapists. I've heard former students at IEP meetings say things that I know we didn't teach them. We didn't teach them that you've got to work to the top of your license. What does that even mean? And then when I look it up on Google, it's a managerial term. They're being told to use these terms to parents. Parents don't want that. They want that genuine interaction. They want to feel that you're really listening to them. And that means you have to really listen. Right. Well, and see, from my perspective, from you know my experience, I guess, one of the first things that I do is ask what they see and what do they think? What is happening? Tell me about your child, because they truly do know more than I do <laughs> about that child. And, and you're talking about listen to the parent. I need to ask them questions or at least provide an entree, you know, an open door for them to walk through and let them know that I'm very interested in what you have to say. And I think that's just a really good place to start. I think it is a good place to start and don't have a clipboard in front of your face. (laughs) I had a student do that because one of the things that they teach at San Diego State, which I was not really a fan of, was scripting the questions that you ask the parents. It turns out some students need the script. Sure, that's a start. I would think it would be a start. Yeah. Sure. Um, Yeah, well, you got to start somewhere, just as long as you... Branch you don't out have from there. Up yeah. Yeah. No, no clipboard in front of the face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had, but the fact that I had to say that was pretty bad. Yeah. That's not good. That's not good. I mean, that's kind of the first rule of conversation. Yeah. But at any rate, or at least of interacting. Yeah. Okay. So that brings me to my next question. What do parents want us to know? They want us to know that they're under a lot of stress. Okay. And they're doing the best they can. I think in some ways it has gotten a little bit easier with this. It sounds terrible. My daughter even said this to me, the silver lining behind the pandemic is that we're spending more time together and her children are really getting to know their grandparents in a way they wouldn't have known us otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that That is what we need to be able to promote with parents is that they're going to be able to do this. They can do this. Okay. So that's one thing that they are under some stress. What else do they want us to know? They want us to know that they will cope. They will learn to cope. That became an issue with almost everybody that I interviewed or that was interviewed for this presentation was that They're going to learn to do things. And I think one of my greatest examples is a mom. I was working with her son when he was four and she was, when you see her interviewed, she looks so meek and shriveled up and into herself. And now he's 21 and I'm still working with him because he still has autism. He still has a communication deficit, but she's this very strong advocate. She doesn't need to hire an advocate. She knows how to advocate. And a group of parents out here have t-shirts called pain in the ass parents. Um, (laughs) Some acronym I can't remember, but they're called a pain in the ass. And and that's what 
they want to be known as is that they're going to be the ones that are going to rattle the cages and we shouldn't be offended. I think there's one video that I have where a parent who's now become an advocate and her daughter was four at the time we interviewed her, but now is an adult. She said, we need to know what you know, not because we're questioning what you're doing, but because you're not going to be here forever. We will be here forever. And that okay. is absolutely true. So that's another thing. That's the third one. Okay. Third thing. All right, good. And how do we do that? I mean, that kind of gets you back to doing therapy with the parent observing or there, right? I mean, that kind of gets back to that. And if the parent isn't there, I mean, do you have that, any suggestions for that? That's partially the story retelled. And I know it's hard when you're working in the schools and you've got a group of four and you've got to contact each of those parents, you still need to contact each of those parents. I have a CF I was working with, and I told her before each IEP to make sure she had contact throughout the year with the parent. So it wasn't just this once a year thing. And I think that really feeds into the parents feeling that nobody's listening because nobody's asking for their opinion. And sometimes they can say the sky is blue and you can say, you just said the sky is blue. No, I didn't say that. And then they'll say the sky is speckled with clouds. Even though they did tell you the sky was blue, you have to go with what they're saying, rephrase it, and then know you're going to be wrong part of the time. I think not having the interaction with the parent breeds the distrust. And that distrust breeds guilt, because if I don't trust you, why am I sending? I just was talking to a parent today who's going to homeschool because she doesn't trust the team. Is it really the team or is it the lack of communication? From my talk with her, it was the lack of communication, but she's still not ready to hear that. And she's an advocate also. Okay. Is she a pain in the house parent? No, she's not. (laughs) No, she's not a pain in the ass parent. She's okay. I had her at San Diego State. So my students were working with her, but I actually had her come and present with me at a conference in April because she was so good at using AAC. And I was asked to do a talk on AAC, and that's not my area of specialty. So I had her come with me. And we were able to do it together. I can speak about the philosophy of AAC. And my philosophy is the schools need to make sure that the parents feel as comfortable using the devices as the speech and language therapist does. And all the staff needs. When I have an aide come up to me when I'm doing a classroom observation and hand me an iPad and say, can you show me how to turn it on? I know we're in trouble. Right. That much I know. I can't tell you how to program it, but I think I stopped programming after they got rid of most of the Dyna boxes. Oh, Oh, dear. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So working with these parents and getting them through this grief process, or at least how to handle it, talk to me about the benefits of having the parent, I'm going to say a little more healthy and approaching, really acknowledging the diagnosis and saying, okay, we're in this, we're going to figure it out, we're going to do it. 
And how do we get the parent there? Because I did mention, you know, the IEP, we're there, we're just starting out, we have a diagnosis, we're giving test scores, et cetera. And so maybe you have a parent that is maybe in denial or is just starting out in that grief process. How do we move through? How do we move through? It's probably through communication and interacting with the parent. But what are some things that we can say to that parent to help them, but also to help their child? Because isn't that kind of why we're doing this? I mean, I'm the therapist of the child. And so I'm working with the parent, yes, to help the parent, but I'm doing it primarily for the child. I mean, yeah, but you want the parent, you want the parent to be on board with it. Exactly. Exactly. I just used a cliche. Um, (laughs) But that's a good one. Yeah, I'm bored with it. I actually have an administrator from one of the companies I'm consulting with, and she has a, a young son who I think is at high risk for either autism or language delay and sensory issues. And her response was, it's too much. I can't do all this stuff. Okay. And we have to hear that and say, okay, what can you do? What can we fit into your schedule? How can we make this work? So make it realistic. The one time I did not do a good job, only one time, a parent told me that she was part of a group that believed that children didn't have autism, but they believed they were speaking in tongues. And Mm. yeah, so I I think I did and walked away. And then she broke up with me over the weekend on email. And I was devastated, not because she left me, but because I hadn't served her well. Now, I'm not sure what or I could child. have said. Yeah. 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 Or, or the, the child. child. Yeah. And I've I'm had this happen. The kid, kid needs a new family. <laughs> you well, know, the father, I mean, I the father left the mother, so that might have helped. Oh, oh there, there also was, because we're all dealing with this now in different ways, I facilitated communication. I had a parent who was at a meeting and the administrator blurted out, Karen says we can't count any of the data unless the communication partner is blindfolded, which was an exaggeration of what I said, but that sort of is what I meant, is Hmm. that the communication partner who is doing the facilitating can't know the answer to the question, or we've got a Ouija board. Right. And (laughs) that's right. (laughs) And every time I've talked to parents about this, I'll talk about, I can't count the data unless I can control all the variables except his response. I have families that will agree with me. I completely get where you're coming from. That's what they say to me. And then they choose not to use me because they want to use somebody who's encouraging the use of facilitated communication, but they Mm -hmm. never get angry with me. Because I haven't slammed a door in their face. I haven't said, no, we can't do this. Mm-hmm. And I I was <clears throat> facilitating a panel discussion one time years ago. And I told everybody on the panel, the panel was made up of other providers, including a psychologist, parents, school, mm-hmm. special ed teacher, me. And I said, So when we meet with all the parents, we're not going to talk about alternative communication or alternative medicine, but we are not going to slam it either. We're going to gently say, we're not here to discuss that. Not that we can't, but that we 
we don't have the knowledge. And the psychologist started off the whole session with, so alternative medicine is BS and we can't accept any of that. And I, I had to stand up and say, no, no, that's not what we mean. We mean we're not here to discuss this today. The question has to become, what would you as a parent not have done to help your child succeed? And I think hmm. that's something we all have to think about. What magic bullet would we not buy? If money was not an issue, would we buy a hyperbaric chambers? Would we buy chelation? Would we buy the speech cream that some <laughs> Dan doctor came into my office and was selling and my husband was appalled that I was letting <clears throat> him use the office? What I would tell parents is, here's the research that's against what is being recommended to you. And here's a parent that did it and liked it. So you make the choice. And almost 100% of the time, if not 100% of the time, the parents would look me in the eye and say, yes, but what do you think? Okay. Because they really wanted to know my opinion. That was harder because I'd have to say <clears throat> chelation, for instance, I would see kids who had all the minerals taken out of their bodies and they would be more agitated because they needed those minerals. However, I learned gluten-free, casein-free actually is a thing. You don't mm -hmm. get rid of autism, but you make the children better able to learn going around it because they don't have the gut problem anymore. So mm -hmm. there's, we have to be open. And that's what I mean by we have to hear the parents. Okay. Okay. Give me some specifics. I know that you have some phrases that you like to use and give me a couple of phrases, two or three phrases that can either escalate frustrations or diffuse frustrations, like some really... things, specific things that we can say or we shouldn't say. So I think what you have to think about is in terms of collaborative language. If we say, I don't want you to do that anymore, or you shouldn't do that anymore, that's pretty stamping no, a negative to the parent. And then you bring up the guilt and then you get the defensiveness and you get defensiveness on the sides of the therapist, defensiveness on the sides of the parents, you get defensiveness all over. Okay. Instead, what you've got to do is collaborative phrases. Why don't we try this? Okay. That's one of the phrases. That Why don't we try this? Okay. Because the other is very controlling and, and it's, I know more than you know. Because I went to school for this and yeah. I get this, I even had one of my stepkids was going through this with his child who at a year old was showing signs of autism. He's now nine and he's fine. But we had him in intensive therapy for speech and language and occupational therapy from the time he was a year old. And his mother, my stepdaughter-in-law, believes that that worked. The father still believes no, he didn't have anything wrong with him. That's why. Hmm. So the collaborative thinking and the collaborative phrases, let's try this. I'm not the expert. This strategy's worked before. Maybe it'll work for your kid. Maybe it won't. I think that's a really good place to go. Also reframing our assumptions. So you said earlier, the parent might be in denial. I found that I was saying that and thinking that around my admin staff and they would give me the phone and say, oh, this is somebody who's in denial. Can you talk to her? 
And I realized, oh my gosh, I need to stop saying those phrases. So reframe our assumptions. That's part of what we've done with Project Impact. Don't assume, and I think that happens a lot with speech and language therapists, as well as other people, we think of this is a high profile parent. What does that even mean? That means they're going to give me a hard time. They're not going to accept everything that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That's why I was getting the more difficult families was because they thought I could talk them off that ledge. I could mm-hmm. get them to listen to me. And I think it was because I was using the collaborative language before I even knew there was a term for it, collaborative language. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is don't outshine them. So we are professionals. I can walk into a room and I can get a kid to like me in a minute. I can also get a kid to hate me in a minute. But (laughs) I've even noticed this with my grandchildren. They always ask me, are you done working? Are you done working, Mima? Are you done working? done working. My two-year-old will ask me, done working? My grandmother used to call me the Pied Piper of children. I could get them to come to me. So it was really easy for me to pretty much do therapy with kids. I could engage them. And I I don't know what that is. And I'm, I'm guessing that most of the people here are able to do that. We all have that skill. But I remember once being at a parent's house and They were doing rehab of the house. So there were construction workers there pounding and slamming and doing all sorts of noises. And there was an infant that was a newborn who was screaming, crying, and there was a dog who was barking. And the mother picked up the two and a half year old who I was working with, and she brought him into the bedroom. He was arching his back and he slammed his head against the door jam. So that escalated his screaming. And I thought, oh, I've got to leave. And then I realized I couldn't leave. I was the one person who needed to stay. So I took him from her and I said, give me just a minute. I had no idea what I was going to do. I brought him into the bedroom. I started rubbing his back and humming while I'm trying to think. I'm sweating. I'm like, I'm a nervous wreck. I don't know what I'm going to do. But he stopped crying and I put him on the bed. And he looked up at me with this beautific smile. This is my story anyway, <laughs> keeping with it. And then the mother started vacuuming right outside the bedroom door. And it wasn't because she was trying to sabotage my work. It was because she felt so much pain that she wasn't able to comfort her son. And the stranger from off the street was. <sighs> and I think that that's what we call it in Project Impact now, because we added it is into one of our things, and I think it's on the handout, is don't outshine the parent. Never mm-hmm. outshine the parent. Because it's easy for us. We have to coach the parent so they can do that, so they can have mm-hmm. that good interaction. And I'm, since the pandemic, I've been working with a family from the Canary Islands. And this mother, I said, I don't have it. I don't have a license in the Canary Islands. I can't really do therapy there. So she sends me video clips of her doing therapy or doing interaction with the kid. And she sent me video clips of people from Spain doing interactions with him. And it's not good. It's not good at all. But what I was able to do with her in the beginning, her therapy was awful. She was like bombarding him with stuff. But instead, I was able to coach her on how to refine what she was doing, focus on 
So he's interested. He He's a real sensory kid and he wants to bounce a lot. Well, you don't bounce him on the ball till he tells you bounce or he uses a gesture or you take his hand and you do it. So he's, he learns he has to give you something to get what he wants. And giving the parent those tools is amazing. And that really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a great deal of intuition. And I'm also thinking that you kind of put yourself in the place of the child. You know, like, what would I want if I were that child? <laughs> you know, like with, with the infant. And I'm so sorry. I, I'm sad to hear that the parent took it that way, you know, with the, the baby that hit his head against the door and, and whatever. Because I'm thinking that you did her a favor, <laughs> you know, to be grateful for that and to say, oh, my gosh, what can I do next time? And, and you know, so but not everybody able- does that, right? But what was good was I was able to follow up and I learned a lot from that. I, I brought her into the room. Okay. And I said, we have to use our druggy voice. I said, it's a drug what voice. voice. Druggy, like druggy? we're on drugs. Like, oh. like, not that I do drugs, but I was <laughs> trying to tell her <laughs> just to speak slower. She was so kinetic okay. and I could feel that. I, yeah. I felt it. When she, you know, that means you're okay, high you're energy. okay, you're okay, you're okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, high energy. Okay. And we Chill have to out. slow everything down. Okay. Our and voice. use less language, but keeping her part of that process. Okay. And I think that that's what we don't do enough of. I think we're doing it more now than we used to. I know when I was trained in the 70s, and even when I was doing the CEU course in, in the early 2000s, we were not doing this. We were thinking, oh, well, yeah, we're the experts. And I've had parents say to me or to my therapist, <laughs> you're the expert. I just want you to do it. And fix and yeah fix, yeah, fix my fix kid. My kid. I'm going to dump him off here. And when I come back, I want him fixed. Yeah. And that's just not how it goes. It, it's not going to go that way because we bring them back to their home. And that's the dynamic of the family. I went into a home last week where it's a little kid who's three, and I don't know what's wrong with him. He may have autism. I don't know. I can't tell. But I was doing everything on telehealth, and finally I said, okay, I've got to come in because I had to get a feel for him. And the home, they had a water pipe break, so they had workers all over. The house is very compacted, very small. There was just too much stuff in the living room the father was there and he said to me well I'm reading to him all the time and I'm putting the alphabet on the refrigerator and he's finding these great patterns to use yeah and I'm talking to the dad about well maybe hyperlexia isn't where we want to go with him (laughs) but I didn't use the term hyperlexia that's the other thing is not using our jargon and I just had a meeting this morning with ABA who I'm collaborating with, and I really do feel that we can collaborate better with ABA than we have been in the past. But when they come into a session and they're talking about manding and tacting, when they mean requesting and labeling, and we all know what requesting is, and we all know what labeling is, but we're going to use these specialty words so that we're using the jargon. That's one of the things we say don't do ever. That's a no, 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 that's, that's kind of a, yeah. 
that's not a very nice thing to do. <laughs> Let's yeah. just go with that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh girl. You know what? I would like to ask you one more question. And okay. this is kind of a, um, just sort of a life lesson question kind of thing. Just a couple of minutes here, but, and I know that you are, you know, you're toying with retirement and so on. So you've seen the progression and changes in our field from your perspective, what has changed in our field? I think there's a couple of things that have changed and I'm not real happy with it. I think there's a lot of people in our field and I'm working with people who don't feel this way, but I have worked with people who feel it should be easier and we should make more money. Um, okay. And I had a, a slip of say to me today, I didn't get into this for the money. I said, good, because you're not going to make it. But she's being told to reach her hours. She's got to do residential homes on the weekends. And that's half the rate of what she's getting as a slipper and a BCBA. No, I said, don't, don't accept that. So there needs to be In a lines. place where you say no. Yeah. Right. Um, I think there's historically been this negativity against ABA. And I think people in our field need to understand ABA better. Okay. I think there's an automatic disregard, just as there has been in the reverse. I was talking to the BCBA supervisor today, and he and I were laughing. It's happening a lot in California, up in Northern California. There's anti-ABA people because of neurodiversity. And I I have very strong opinions about that. I think we're talking about a very small percentage of the population that's neurodiverse, and we should call them something else. So going back to your guilt question, I see the parents of children with very low functional skills feeling very guilty that they can't get their kids neurodiverse. They would love to have their kids neurodiverse because then they would be verbal and they would be able to interact with them. Okay, well, and, that is certainly something that has changed. <laughs> that's, yeah. And it's just, I'm going to say that's been fairly recent. I mean, it's been, yeah, it's been very recent. Like overnight kind of thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it might, it, there's been a lot of stuff during the pandemic. I've had, I'm part of a blog where I, I try not to answer, but I listen. It's younger SLPs who wish they had gone into IT work because they would okay. make more money, but it's, it's completely yeah. diverse. It's completely different than what we're doing. You're not, never going to see me wanting, well, you know, today I called you and said, <laughs> I don't know how to use this file yeah. that I'm doing. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. I didn't want to learn how to do telehealth. I was completely against telehealth until the pandemic hit. And now I'm loving it. Yeah. And I've got to write somebody tonight and say, yeah, I'm not going to come to the IEP, but can you bring me on telehealth? Yeah. Because so we all easier. have our, our strengths and our, our things that we feel capable of doing. And probably if somebody's saying, boy, I really don't want to do this speech therapy the thing. I'm going to go in and be an IT person that I'm saying, please do, you know, yes. do what yes. is your strength and what's going to make you happy. But okay, Karen, girl, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very uh, you're welcome. Amazing. Your expertise is off the charts and your experience is just, you know, amazing. You've worked with so many kids and so many parents and you're I'm very sure welcome. That they're, 
very grateful for it. We're grateful for your knowledge. So in closing, I do want to thank all of you for being here, for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast, where you not only learn, but you earn tons of, of practical information, but you also earn CEUs. So do know that in a very few days, you'll be able to access this course that you just watched through speechtherapypd.com. And you can watch it again if you want to, if you missed something. And if you so desire, you can access the auditory only version on all the popular podcast apps like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Podbean and all of those. So I do want to thank you for doing all of that and, and also for listening and for providing your very supportive comments and your good reviews on those apps. Also, if you're planning ahead, I want to I'm kind of taking a break here from the speech link for next month, but so the next episode is going to be in December, Thursday, December 8th at seven o'clock PM Eastern, just like tonight. And my guest is going to be Jennifer Gray, and she's going to share some really interesting information and ideas about the role of voice in speech clarity. And I, I hope you can attend. So, and I also hope that you know just how much you are appreciated and thank you so much for all that you do for your therapy kids. So we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be a part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit charboshart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.